Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. everybody. This is Dr. Laura Froyan, and I'm back with another episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. And today we are going to geek out about attachment theory with my new friend and colleague and the author of a beautiful book called Love Rays. So please let me introduce you to Paula Sachs, attachment theory expert and our guest today. Paula, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you. Will you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Orson, thank you very much for having me. I love talking attachment. So I'm very excited to have this opportunity to talk about attachment. I am a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in attachment. And I actually treat adults with attachment disorder. And in 2016, 17, I was part of a group of therapists in Boston, where we published a book called Attachment Disturbances in Adults treatment for comprehensive repair. And it's actually a book more for the professionals, the, you know, the psychologist and people who actually treat people with attachment disturbances, because it's 795 pages of textbook and everything you want to know about attachment is actually brilliant. And we won an award for it. So very proud of it. And out of that book came our five primary conditions for treating secure attachment. And I decided that what good is it if I know what those five primary conditions are? I need to develop them and get them out into the world for new mothers because they don't know what these five primary conditions are. So I recently wrote a book called The Importance of Love Rays, and it is developing secure attachment in infancy and childhood. And out of that book came a book for more toddler age children, which is about love rays. And I'll explain more about love rays when I talk about the five primary conditions. But it is such an exciting way when you think about raising a child and this beautiful, daunting task that we have. And my mission is to really get this information out to new parents to say, hey, don't strive for perfection because it won't happen. Okay. We want to do more often than not. And I want to give you just five primary conditions that you just need to learn and understand and implement. And you will have a very good relationship with your child. Oh, I love that. So we're going to dig into those five primary conditions because I know everybody right now is on the edge of their seats like, what? 
are they? Tell us what they are. Tell us what to do. But I just want to frame our conversation a little bit because in recent years, and I'm a total attachment theory nerd, and attachment theory has been around for, what, 70 years now? 70 years now, but really the focus has been in the last 40. Yeah, right. And so it's nothing new, but I feel like in the past 15 years as attachment Mm -hmm. parenting has become a thing that we've kind of lost our sense of like the differences between attachment theory and attachment parenting. And so I just want to like frame our conversation today, you know, that we are talking about attachment theory, kind of the theory of how bonds and relationships are formed in infancy versus a set of parenting practices that are kind of clustered together in attachment parenting. Can you tell me a little bit about like what you see is the difference between attachment theory and attachment parenting? Absolutely. Attachment parenting was developed and it was more with the basic notion that the mother and child stay together for a very long extended period of time. So the mother is consistently available to meet the needs of the child. And it is, I mean, the model and the concept sounds amazing. All right. But the difference right now is, and they kind of have this belief that in this bonding, the mother will always be there to meet the child's needs. And the child will kind of tell you naturally when they are ready to stop breastfeeding or when they are ready to sleep on their own. And it kind of does put like emphasis on the child's needs that the child will tell you when they're ready and they're, they're ready to go off and be more independent. Well, the difference with attachment theory is 40 years ago, I was part of an infant study. I was in undergraduate and my psychology professor was looking for five students and two people would be filming an interaction between a mother and a child because attachment is actually set at between 12 and 18 months of life. All right. And this is pre-cognitive. So it's not anything that you really understand. It's just a way of being. And this attachment came out because John Bulbury was noticing how animals stay close to their mother for proximity, for for safety. Mm -hmm. And this is where it all kind of started. So to go back to this attachment project or attachment, the strange situation paradigm that I was part of, I would stand behind a one-way mirror with mothers and they would come in and they would be introduced to a room with two chairs, some toys. And at the time, it was VHS tapes, but someone would be behind a black box and they would have a video camera. So the baby would not see the the person filming. And what we actually filmed was the interaction between the mother and the child. But it was a series of three minute little kind of quick episodes where like the mother and the baby were introduced to the room. And then for three minutes, the mother and child would be filmed in their interactions, in their play. And then a stranger would come in the room for the next three minutes and would be with the mother and the baby. And the stranger would just sit there. And we started noticing how the mother and the child, how the child started under, you know, like sensing that somebody was around and whether they stayed closer to their mother for proximity or they were okay, however. And then the mother would leave, leaving the stranger with the child. And it was the child's response to being left alone and being with a stranger, okay, that really kind of like gave us a lot about attachment and how this child was being kind of created at this time, right? And then the stranger would leave the room and the child would be on their own. So we're filming now the baby's reaction and the baby's interaction about being in this strange place by themselves. Then the mother would come back in the room. And this is what attachment is because attachment is a dyad between two people. And so your first dyad is going to be with your primary caregiver. And just for the sake, I'm going to say mother, but what I'm really talking about is primary caregiver. It could be the father. It could be the grandparent. It could be somebody who's in foster care. I mean, it just, whoever's with that child the most is a primary caregiver. 
So what came out of this? It's attachment theory, which is different from attachment parenting. Attachment parenting is quantity, always being there, which is kind of unrealistic in today's world because as women, we have careers, we are married or we're not, or we're in relationships with other people. We have so many other demands on us that sometimes it's not really realistic to have a child attached to us for five years consistently. And it causes problems in other areas. That's one of the downsides of attachment parenting. But with attachment theory, what we're really interested in is when there's a disruption, let's say a child's left alone or a child's with a stranger, how does the relationship come back together and soothe the child for secure attachment? Yeah, that reunion is key for coding. You know, when researchers are analyzing the strange situation that Paula mm-hmm. just beautifully described, we code for certain behaviors, certain patterns of behaviors between parent and child. And they're looking at the moment when, you know, what happens when the stranger enters. They're looking at the moment of what happens when the mom leaves. We're looking at the moment of what happens when the parent comes back. And those moments are where we're looking at the child's behavior, the parent's behavior, and working together to figure out what is this child's or dyad's overall strategy for handling the ups and downs of life. Which is important because if you think about attachment, you know, you're going to have ups and downs Mm -hmm. as, As in childhood, you're going to have it in your teen years, you're going to have it in college. And if you don't have ups and downs early, then you're not prepared later on when you have them. Yeah. Absolutely. So attachment is kind of sometimes gotten a bad rap because it's being associated as you always have to be there and you have to 100% meet a child's needs. No, what we're saying is it's the quality. Yeah. And that's where these five primary conditions come in, because these are the quality that you need to focus on, because the reality is you are going to be separated from your child and you are going to be in situations where your child's going to be disappointed or your child's going to be upset. And it's the quality of your relationship with the child. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, you know, with attachment parenting, we get the idea that there are these practices, the baby bees, you know, breastfeeding, bed sharing, baby wearing, you know, we get the idea that this is the pathway to secure attachment. And that might be true for some folks, for some parent-child dyads. But what attachment theory teaches us is that the relationship is the key here. And there's two individuals in the relationship and that secure attachment is built by being sensitively attuned and responsive to your unique individual child. And so we can't say a set of, you know, specific practices like breastfeeding or baby wearing are related to secure attachment because that might not be the case for all babies and for all dyads, right? And I mean, absolutely. and the research on attachment theory, those things are not related at all too. I agree with you 100% because, you know, you can spend five years, you know, with a baby attached to you. But if you think that that's the primary piece that's going to create secure attachment, well, what if you're not doing the five primary conditions, but you just have a baby with you? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So we can be baby wearing, you know, having a kid in a carrier and ignoring them, not talking to them at all, you know, or for my oldest hated being in a baby wearer. We found out, you know, like as she grew older that she had some sensory issues and being so close to someone was really disturbing to her Mm -hmm. nervous system. Like I did not put her in a baby carrier very often Mm -hmm. because I was being sensitively responsive to her. And But it's hard when parents are out there getting the message that this is what you need to do to have a secure attachment. You need to do these things. We quiet our intuition. We stop listening and trusting our babies. 
And that's really what we need to be doing is tuning in to our kiddos, looking closely. What are their needs? What are they telling me here? How can I meet them? And how, when I can't meet them, because we can't all the time, because we're human, you know, how can I repair those ruptures? So, okay, let's dig in. What are the five primary conditions for a secure attachment? And I know you outline them so beautifully in your book. It's beautifully done. But what are those five primary conditions for a secure attachment? Okay, well, let me just start out by saying, what are we talking about with secure attachment? Like, Paula, what does that look like? Okay, what it looks like. And this is what we see in, you know, young children. This is what we're going to set up for because we want our children to grow into people with integrity, with valuing relationships, with being able to be open with their feelings, to be able to have some reflective understanding, to really understand like, yeah, I brought a lot of this on myself or it's not all her fault or my fault, but I can understand both perspectives. We also want them to have good self-esteem and a good, strong sense of self and to be warm and open with others and to be able to accept criticism without distress and to kind of have a positive self-image and, you know, to be able to be close to people and be comfortable with intimacy. So when we talk about secure attachment, this is what we want. And this is what our kind of end game is. All right. Yes. But these things don't just happen. Okay. They are created very early on and it's in the relationship. So it's not about blaming people or you're not doing this or you're doing this or etc. It's about understanding that this relationship is so critical. And I just want to say, as I start these five primary conditions, they are five. They do not stand mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean like the first one you check that box and you're good to go, or the second one you check that box. They will constantly be with your child as they go into childhood, into teenage years, into dating, into getting married themselves, into the workplace, because you're instilling these in your child. So the very first one, and I'm going to present it to you from your child's perspective. All right, which is what my original book, The Importance of Love Rays, is really about. It's understanding your child's perspective. All right. And the first one is the baby must feel felt safety. And the parent action to that is protection. And when I'm talking about protection, I'm not talking about just making sure that you have plugs in your outlets or the child's in a, you know, the crib side is up. We know cognitively that our child is safe. That's what we do as parents. Mm -hmm. But what I'm talking about is when your child is distressed emotionally, Mm -hmm. is to really kind of understand that they don't feel safe at this moment. And for instance, in the baby study that I talked about, if a child doesn't feel safe near a stranger, the baby's going to come very close to the mother. Mm-hmm. And the mother needs to really understand that she's to provide this safety to put her arm around and protect this child. The child will feel safe. And once a child feels safe, then they're free to go explore again. Yeah. But it's almost like they just kind of have to touch that base a little bit or they have to make sure they look to see if mom's always there because that's instilling this sense of safety in a child. Yeah. And what we see in schools when a child doesn't feel safe and what I love is these anti-bullying campaigns because if a child doesn't feel safe in the world, it stopped all the developmental lines. Yeah. Because if you're not safe, you can't have good you know, relationships with others. You can't concentrate on your schoolwork. You can't function on things that, you know, help you individually because you're so hypervigilant to be safe. Yeah. So safety and protection is key. It develops trust. 
so what you're saying is so beautiful. And I just wanted to pull out too, like, this is something that we talk about a lot that, you know, in the midst of a discipline moment with a child, that if we are expecting them to learn a lesson, learn a new behavior, learn a new way of being, they got to feel safe first. And I also want to say, because we're talking, you know, the five primary conditions, like I said, you want to instill them in your child because obviously newborns need to feel safe. Well, they need to feel safe for the rest of their life. So what you're instilling in your child right now is this sense of safety, this sense that you as the primary caregiver make it safe for your child. They start to develop trust because then the parent represents the world later on in life. And if a child feels safe in this relationship, that means they internally feel safe and they'll be able to take that safety and apply it to other areas of their life. So safety is critical. Mm -hmm. It's like this balm that they can carry with them out into the world, you know, that that they're safe. It's beautiful. Okay, so that's the first primary condition. The first one. Then the second one is, once again, the child's perspective, feeling seen and known. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that we know is that when babies come into the world, they have needs Mm -hmm. and they have to 100% rely on somebody to meet those needs. So this is what we're talking about, safety, and we're talking about meeting these needs. So a child cannot survive without a parent or a caregiver or someone to take care of them. They just can't, all right? So they come into this world and they have one cry. They don't have a cry for hunger. They don't have a cry for when they're tired. They don't have a cry for pain, not early on. Mm-hmm. All right. They have one cry. So it's really up to the other person to really kind of see and know what that child is experiencing, to kind of have this intuition about what's going on. Because they'll say, I know that, you know, my child is fed and I know my child is okay. Maybe my child is this, but they really start to kind of figure out what the child needs. And the child is once again, when this happens, it reinforces that trust again. Because they know that if they have a need, the parents, the primary caregiver, eventually the world will help meet that need. Oh, beautiful. Paula, I want to ask a question here, if you don't mind. Um, No, please ask away. Okay. So I know I felt as a new mom and even knowing like all that I knew about attachment, because I knew a lot about it before I became a mom. But even then, in that moment with my newborn baby, when I didn't know exactly what she needed and she was crying, there was this sense of like, I got to meet her needs. I need to meet her needs right now, this kind of urgency. And Mm -hmm. I I know for me that when I realized I was in that moment of urgency, that it was ramping me up. And this moment I calmed down and said to myself, okay, I've got this. She's telling me what she needs. We're figuring this out together. I'm learning what she needs, you know, and and soothed myself a little bit. Yeah. In that moment, I was able Mm -hmm. to tune in with her. Like that frantic, like emergency sense of things just got in the way. And so I think a lot of parents have this sense of like, we got to stop the crying. We got to meet their needs. Like there's this urgent thing. And I want to just convey to parents that, yes, of course, we need to tune in with our kids, figure out what they need and meet their needs. But there is also there's time to move in there calmly with confidence too, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's hard because, you know, for new moms, and this is what, you know, we all want to be perfect. We want to do it right. And we know this, you know, when you have a child, you don't think down the road, you know, all the problems you're going to have. You just think, I'm just going to love my child mm-hmm. and my child's going to be perfect. I'm not going to have the issues that you have because I'm going to do it right. Right. And reality kind of sets in because as a new mom, you're exhausted you're tired, you want to do 100% perfect all the time. And let me just say there is no perfect. Yeah, you can't. And you don't need to. 
And in fact, you shouldn't be. And I know we're going to talk about ruptures and repairs a little bit later, but they need us to get it wrong sometimes so we can fine tune and build resiliency into the relationship too. And, you know, we're also establishing the basis of a relationship, which is collaborative, not authoritarian. You need the baby to work with you to really kind of convey this. And you need the mother to really work with the baby and come together in the relationship a relationship is two people. Yes. <laughs> so it's not just on the mom that she should know or everybody else does this and, you know, she's a failure. No, 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 no. What I'm trying to say is you are, have a relationship with this baby, mm-hmm. your baby, and it's going to be a relationship that you're setting up for the rest of your life. And there is no perfect. And yeah. you want to just think more often than not. What is More the often than not, feel of it. Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. exactly. And so when we talk about seen and known, and as I'm a mother, I've, I have two daughters, and it's that when your baby cries and they're in a room of babies, you know that's your baby crying. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's that intuition that your baby needs you at that moment and you go over because your baby needs you. Mm-hmm. And you know that out of all the baby cries, because all babies kind of sound alike, but that's your baby. And that's what I'm talking about being seen and known. It's that it's that fine attunement that when a child comes in from school and you can see them later on when they become children, that something's bothering them, mm-hmm. but you just know they're off their game that day. Yeah. And this is about the relationship. And so what I'm really kind of promoting is the quality of the relationship, not mom's being perfect, okay, or dad's being perfect or anybody else. (laughs) I'm trying to focus on look at it as a relationship that you're going to have for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. So when we were talking about like the soothing and kids having the sense that you know, that we are going to meet their needs and stuff, I always think about my family is the parents that I work with who had colicky babies and how hard that can be. And so I just wanted to just touch on that for a second, you know, what your recommendations are for parents who have a child who is difficult to soothe, who have a baby who, you know, usually the colic is in that first, you know, six to nine months, which is a crucial period for attachment too. you know, so what do we do when we've got a child who's difficult or tricky to soothe? You know, I'll tell you something. The thing is, it's you have to understand in your cognitive wherewithal, this is temporary. Mm-hmm. We can get through anything if it's temporary. Okay. But when you're in it, it feels like it's like winter in Boston, you know, for four months, it's freezing. You know what I mean? You forget what summer was like. You forget what spring was like, but you need to have self-care. You need to make sure that, you know, you get support during this time because when you get exhausted, it, it wears on you. I think it really wears on parents' confidence, their sense of, like, I can meet my child's needs when no matter what we're doing, they cry anyway. Like, I think it can really challenge their sense of efficacy, you know, that they're doing it right, that they've got it. And, you know, just, I think that can be so hard, you know. I think it can be very hard. But what I also tell people is really watch your mind. Because if your mind is like racehorses and they just take off, you have to go back and get it. And when you're in that moment and you think, why did this happen to me? You know, everybody else doesn't have to deal with this. Everybody's sleeping. Why can't I be a good mom to my baby? Exactly. And you can see how the mind will start to take on a life of its own. So it's like you have to rein it in. Okay. And understand that this is a temporary thing. Your child is not going to be colicky for 18 years. Your child right now is 
dysregulated and does not know how to get regulated. And it's that holding and that comforting, even when that child is that way, even if you have to put the child down and let the child cry, then you do it. But it has to be self-care because you can't, if you're on an airplane and the oxygen mass drop, you can't put the oxygen on everybody else but yourself. Okay, so my recommendation is get as much support and as much self-care as you possibly can get in there because you're in a really difficult situation. Acknowledge that it's difficult. Acknowledge that it, it sucks. Don't put pressure on yourself. Absolutely. And I think too, like if you are out of that stage and you had one of these babies who was difficult to soothe and now they're older, just know that nothing was lost. You didn't miss your chance or miss your window. There's every opportunity now, you know, when things are a little bit easier, they can tell you what they need. They can communicate where you can continue to build those five primary conditions with your child, even though, you know, when they were little, it was much harder to do. There's still opportunity nothing's been lost, nothing's been broken. Exactly. And you know, one of the things about the five primary conditions, let's say you you find out about my book when your child is seven and you think, oh my God, I messed up. I wish I would have known this way back when. Do it now. Do it now. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you can only do this when a child is like, you know, 12 months old. And after that, the window closes and it's closed yeah. forever. No, this is do it now. Yep. Absolutely. So, because it's all about a resilient relationship that's open to change. You know, that's absolutely. And let me tell you something. If you don't have kind of hardships and disruptions, you're not going to be resilient. Yeah, exactly. So I say embrace the imperfection. Be kind to yourself. And also, you know, watch your mind. Yeah. If your mind starts going down that kind of negative road, turn it around. Yeah. Bring it back. Be firm with yourself. I love bring it. it back and say, geez, I'm just, you know, I'm not much, but I'm all I've got. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm good enough. Just as I am. I am good enough. Yeah. Okay. So what's the third primary condition? The third primary condition is called felt comfort. Now, once again, it's for the child because as the child gets older, or even, you know, let me just tell you, my daughter, my first daughter, she was nocturnal. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't wake her up in the daytime. And at night, it was so frustrating. I was exhausted. I was tired. I thought, I can't do this for the next 18 years. You know, everything is in. Did you have to do it for the next 18 years? No. But you <laughs> I know, know but it feels that way. <laughs> you know, when you think you've got 18 years ahead of you, you know, or 20 years ahead of you, you're exhausted. And you're like, what have I done? Right. <laughs> but if you really understand that these are all just moments and they're all just little temporary cycles and everything's going to get back to normal and we want to normalize it. And you know what? She's still a little nocturnal now, but she's an adult now. It doesn't <laughs> affect me anymore. So when I talk about felt comfort now, what I'm really talking about is soothing and reassuring. And the reason why this one is so important is because we want to instill in our children that yes, you're going to be frustrated. Yes, you're going to have disappointments and we're going to help you that it's going to be okay, that it's not the end of the world. And you know, when a one-year-old is frustrated or has a little bit of a, a disappointment, it's very different than let's say an 18-year-old. So we want our children to have, you know, little disruptions and we want them to have disappointments and we want them to have frustration because this is in this safe relationship that we help build how they're going to deal with later frustrations and disappointments. Yeah. So I love the sense of that these are things that we want them to have. I think so often, you know, peaceful parenting or 
gentle parenting has the idea that our kids are never upset. And that is not the case. We do not want that for our kids. When we limit the range of human experience to only the positive, we actually shorten their entire range. And so we need the good and the bad, the full range of human emotional experience, right? We need the full range for our kids. They need practice. Especially when the disappointments and frustrations are small. You know, like right now, like it's a block tower that won't stand up. That's hugely frustrating to a two-year-old. I mean, mm-hmm. and, like so much validity to that frustration. Of course, it's frustrating. It's one of the most frustrating experiences they've ever had because they're <laughs> inexperienced. But helping them through that, learning to cope with it, I mean, experience it well, move through it, regulate it. Then when they're 17, they just got cut off for the first time and they're a new driver. Then they know how to regulate themselves with frustration when they're behind the wheel of a car, you know? Absolutely. And you're doing it in the safety of this relationship. Yeah. So when I talk about the safety of the relationship, this is how you're creating their sense of self. And the next one I want to talk about, which is absolutely my favorite, which is feeling valued. Mm -hmm. All right. And this is all about self-esteem. And I asked somebody one time, like, how would you rate your self-esteem? And they said, well, I might think I have very good self-esteem. And I said, well, how did you get it? My mom gave it to me. And I'm like, excellent. How? Blank. Had no idea right? Well, the fourth primary condition is all about self-esteem. And how we create self-esteem in a child is this feeling valued. And when a child has a sense of accomplishment, and it's met in the relationship with someone who mirrors back that pride and that joy and that good feeling state, that's what creates self-esteem. And you do that a lot with your child. They have a backdrop of feeling good about themselves and feeling valued. Absolutely. And I want to pull just one thing that you said out there that was so beautifully stated. When your child has their own sense of accomplishment that's bubbling up from within them, then you hold the mirror Mm -hmm. as the parent. You're the mirror and you reflect it back to them. So this is not the parent coming in and evaluating the child, giving the child their sense of who they are, giving the child a sense of you should feel good about this. This is about the child having it come up within them and then the parent holds the mirror so that the child can see themselves clearly well and i'll tell you something and the the part on the parent is the mirroring okay because the child is always going to look to the mother to say look what i did Mm -hmm. okay or the father whomever the primary caregiver grandparents even the first thing a child when they have a sense of accomplishment they look to their love object primary caregiver and they want to see that All right. And the parental behavior around these moments is it's called amplifying the affect, which is you smile and you rejoice. And that's where I termed love rays. Because for instance, and I use this a lot, a child gets into an elevator because we've all had this and they want to press the button. Well, this is a sense of accomplishment for a three-year-old. Okay. And this is where it starts because they know they can press that button. And when they press it, they're happy, they're elated, and they feel good. And the first thing they do once they do this sense of accomplishment is they turn to their primary you know, caregiver. They turn to their primary caregiver for this kind of like rejoicing moment. And if the parent is on the phone and misses it, the child will look for this and will, won't get it. Yeah. So it's a missed opportunity. And this is not to say we have to be completely present, you know, and not ever be on our phone. Certainly not. 
but being present for, you know, more often than not being exactly available for those moments. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. And I just want to say, because children have a sense of accomplishment all the time. So you get all these many opportunities for these, you get so many. So it's not just like, Oh my God, I messed up because I did something with this elevator. No, it's when the child, you know, stirs the cupcake batter. Mm-hmm. That's a sense of accomplishment. You have to understand it from the child's perspective. They're proud of being something, of doing something, and they want that recognition for it. And that's an opportunity. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I want to just clarify too for everybody listening this does not sound like us saying things like, I'm so proud of you, or like, you did a good job, you know, like not these like blanket praise options, but to be the mirror, we say things like, you did it, or that was fun. I see you're all lit up inside. You know, mm-hmm. oh, look at that look on your face. You're so happy you did that. You know, those are the phrases that we're talking about. Those are the mirroring phrases. Like, yes. look at what you did. You know, oh, that was fun, wasn't it? You know, those kind of like, here, I'm with you. I see you. I see your sense of pride, and I'm going to reflect that back to you. So it's not overt praise coming from us, but it's rather that that mirroring piece of thing. And that is a skill that takes time to build. And if we didn't get that growing, up, mm-hmm. it's hard for us to have that now because most parents now are children's of the 80s and 90s when praise was the like order of the day and like mainstream parenting like we you know good job good work yo yay mm-hmm. that was what parents were told was the right thing to do and so now we are parenting and it's hard to not go there ourselves because that's what we received a lot of times if we were lucky and we had parents who really wanted to build our self-esteem you know you were saying that this is a different way a much more subtle way of helping a child come to the conclusion that they are worthy in and of themselves and we are just reflecting back that process for them i agree because i think that you know and i will say my when my daughter was playing soccer you know the theory was give everybody a trophy so everybody feels like a winner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well that actually worked out in opposite. It actually worked out in reverse because they got a reward without a sense of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. So it eroded their self-esteem. Yeah. All right. And, but I just want to say, my daughter said to me, you know, why do we get blamed for everything all the time? Parents are the ones that gave us the trophies. We didn't go get them ourselves. We were given those trophies. Yeah. You, I, you know what I'm saying? I do. I so know what you're saying. And you know, it's funny, like the same thing happens too. Like when, you know, a child is building a tower and they're like happy with their tower, they're good with their tower, but they're not like over the moon about their tower. And then we come in with, yeah, you did it. They're like, was I not supposed to do it? Did you think I couldn't? You know, so like being sensitively attuned in this process is noticing their level of sense of accomplishment. If, if they're like, yeah, I did it. Okay. You're like, yeah, you did it. Okay. You know? Yeah, like matching them is so important. Matching them is so important. But what also, and I just want to say here is that children learn with their eyes. So you don't have to worry so much about focusing on what to say. I mean, I think that positive reinforcement is wonderful. But when your child sees that love in your eyes, and I just want to say, when you were explaining that about the tower with your child, your face just beamed with like pride and love. (laughs) And imagine your child when you're looking at them. And the reason why I wrote about love rays is because this is about instilling that sense in your child through your eyes, because children learn with their eyes. Yeah. All right. So if you walk in and you've got this, you know, pouring love into your child, they feel it and they receive it very much like the sun, you know, like the flowers receive the sun rays from the sun. Mm-hmm. They feel it. They drink it up. And this is what I'm talking about by 
feeling valued. Mm -hmm. All right. So I am absolutely a gigantic, I mean, I just cannot promote it enough to say, you know, be really mindful when you look at your child that you feel this, you know, you convey with your face, with your eyes, with your mannerisms, the feeling. Yeah. So I teach meditation to some of the parents that I work with. And this is particularly helpful for parents who have a child who's difficult, who's challenging, who pushes them and stretches them. Because sometimes those rays dim Mm -hmm. when a child is difficult or when there's difficulty. And so I teach my parents this meditation where we pull up memories where it was easy to love those kids. And we intentionally every day spend time practicing those golden moments, practicing, Mm -hmm. sending those love waves. And it changes so much. The simple practice, it helps you remember, like, even though your child's in a tricky phase, they're still the same child that those love rays flowed freely towards. We can let them flow again, even in a difficult stage. And maybe even more importantly, during a difficult stage, you know, maybe it's even more important that we intentionally keep a hold of them and keep sending them through those difficult times. I agree. And, you know, it's interesting because even if, you know, if we practice it with not just our children, but we practice it with people, we know when we walk into a room and someone smiles at us and makes us feel important, we feel good about ourselves. Of course we do. And it's it's the same thing when you walk in. It's a human thing. It's a human thing. And so you're going to get it all the time. And we also know that feeling when someone looks at you and you go, oh my God, did you see the way that person looked at me? That felt terrible. So we're doing it all the time naturally anyway. Okay. But if we were to be a little bit more conscious about it and really just being really with our children and also with our spouses and with our friends and really convey that, what happens is the people around you start to feel loved and valued. Mm -hmm. So it's not just with children. Yeah. This is how people will always remember these moments because they might not be able to articulate how they got their self-esteem. But they will remember these kind of like, I just know because it was just the way my mom was. Mm -hmm. It's just the way she did things. I don't even know what it was, but this is what they're talking about. It's that feeling inside, you know, they feel good about themselves. And you want a child that feels good about themselves because they will succeed. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. I feel like we did four. Did we do? We did four. (laughs) The last one, it's a little bit older. So these four, you're going to start doing, you know, basically, and I just want to say they don't stand alone. So you're always interchanging them. I mean, sometimes felt safety is going to be with felt comfort. And sometimes being seen and known is going to be with feeling valued. So they're always going to be playing out in different forms and different combinations. But the last one is really important because if you do these four and you get used to it, what happens is the child gets this sense of feeling that they're really supported in the world, mm-hmm. that they're with people that really understand them, that they feel safe with, that they feel, you know, that they get soothing and comfort. And when they have a, a hardship later on or a disappointment, you know, they'll go back to those feelings of safety inside of themselves. And they're able to regulate themselves and also get through difficult times without it being the end of the world or without a lot of drama or without creating chaos mm-hmm. because they've internalized all of this. They're rooted and grounded in this sense of safety, trust, comfort, and value. Yes. And one of the things about these five primary conditions, we know this. We know it through 40 years of research. Mm-hmm. We know it through just 40 years of, of it being applied 
Yeah. All right. And so what I want to do is I wrote a book from the child's perspective, my importance of love raise. It's from the child's perspective because he's going to come into the world and be born to people he's never met before. And he doesn't know who these people are. He doesn't know what country, what gender, what nationality, what race. He knows nothing. He just knows he's going to leave a place he loves and he's going to be born. And he's like, are these people going to know how to take care of me? Seems like a normal question to ask. It does. And so as you read the story, these five primary conditions illustrate all that the parent needs to know and needs to do to reassure this little person that, you know, when he arrives, we got you. Yeah. We're going to take care of you. We're going to give you the best that we can possibly do because when parents bring children in the world, they already want the best for their children. So now what I've done is I've just given you five tools. You didn't do the fifth one though. Um, well, I touched upon it. I'm yeah. feeling support for best self. Oh yeah. Got it. And Good. yeah. And that just means that everything's been internalized and mm -hmm. you really do believe whether it's inner and out and or outer exploration that you've got, you're kind of populated inside with all these good feelings. Yeah. And that's the goal. Oh, you know, you're reminding me of a quote by L.R. Nost, who is a gentle parenting writer. This quote is, every day in hundred small ways, our children ask, do you hear me? Do you see me? Do I matter? And their behavior often reflects our response. I think just to highlight like what you're saying that every day our kids are have these questions. And I love that about your book, that our kids are wondering these things all the time. And they are asking us with their behavior. In their behavior, they are asking us the way they look up and check, the way they push a boundary the way they mm -hmm. test a limit you know they are asking do you see me do you hear me do I matter are you mm -hmm. going to keep me safe are you going to keep me protected and then it's our behavior that answers them not necessarily through our words but our behavior yeah and that's something too that I think just doesn't get talked about enough in attachment theory that attachment theory really is a set of behavioral responses it's a set mm -hmm. of you know we measure it by things we can see and observe between you know the caregiver the attachment figure and the child that's how we measure attachment mm -hmm. and so really like when our kids are asking us these questions with their behavior we've got to be ready to meet them with our behavior and that's yes. why respectful parenting is so important I mean, in these five primary conditions, your book tells you these are the behaviors you need to meet your child with when they're asking these questions. And not all the time, right? Not perfectly, but, you know, the majority of the time. Kind of, you know, this is the sense that we have of the relationship. And so I want to be respectful of our time, you know, and everything. But I do want to just touch on rupture and repair and how vital rupture and repair is to the attachment process. All right, let's, I'll give you an example because I think it's easier to learn sometimes from examples. Me too. And we'll just use a, a child, not an infant or, you know, a teenager. Okay, but let's talk about that middle period, that time when they've moved from the, you know, the parents are the primary condition or the primary, you know, structures and then the family. This is Erickson's developmental stages, but let's move into where it's peers. Yeah. Okay, because we still need the parents, we still need the family support. And then now we're going to move into the peers where we're in school and we're doing something. And let's just say that there's a child on a soccer field and they're going down the field and they're going to score a goal. All right. Well, you already kind of feel this inside of yourself. Even as I talk, this kind of like this elation, this child knows they can do it and they want to make that goal and they want the team support and they want to feel good. You already can feel this in the child as he's running down the field. Right. Mm -hmm. And let's say that he scores. Well, the first thing he's going to do is turn around to the people that brought him to the soccer field, his dad, his mom, you know, his grandparents, whomever. And what if they miss it? What if, what they, if miss they miss it? it for some reason? All right. Well, 
we can repair that quite easily. Right, which happens and with no blame happens, on the parent. Like There's no blame because you're not going to always have your eyes on your child. And you know what? And that becomes a problem in and of itself if you do. Mm. Life goes on. It is important to have these disruptions. But how we repair it is we go in and we do the same thing as if we would have seen it. But we ask the child now cognitively, I saw coach so-and-so, you know, high-fived you. I can't believe I missed it, but you got to tell me about it because I saw everybody on the team was so elated. They came over and they ran over and they, so what I'm doing in this example is amplifying the affect. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get him or her to go back into that memory, into that moment and recreate that moment inside of themselves where I can join them amplifying the affect. So I start saying, well, tell me all about it. Tell me exactly what happened. What did it feel like when you were running down? When exactly did you know you were going to score? What was it like when you saw the ball go into that net? And you can see, even as I say this, you can see the child just starting to get more excited because they're reliving this moment with you. Okay. Now that's a repair. Beautiful. Now, what if the kid says, no, you missed it. If you cared about it, you would have been looking. Well, I will tell you that's because right there, that statement tells me that that child has internalized a narrative. And that narrative is, I'm not as important as whatever you were doing. Yeah. And that means that you're going to need to go in and you're going to start have to do some work around the narrative because attachment is pre-narrative. Mm -hmm. All right. But when a child can start to think, they start noticing once again with their eyes. And if they see that mom says one thing or dad says one thing, like dad says, I love you, but dad's never around. Or mom says, I love you, but she's too busy with her friends or whatever. Doesn't matter because a child will perceive something. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Okay. What I'm saying is it's a perspective. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that perspective because that's what people operate on is perspective. And it's going to be important to, to catch it and then go in and help them understand that perspective and possibly change that perspective. And that will be once again in the relationship because attachment is activated in a relationship. Yeah. And it's easy, you know, when your kid says something like that, it's easy to get defensive or to push back and say, that's not true. You know, and so when a kid says that in the moment, what would you do? What would you say back to them? First of all, you always want to validate where a child is. Yeah. You always have to. Okay, because you don't want to gaslight and say that's not true, mm -hmm. because that will shut a child down. Yeah, and teach okay. them not to trust their intuition. Their, their exactly. Yeah. And it yeah. also teaches them not to trust their eyes, but what people tell them. Yeah. And we always want people to trust their eyes and not what they're told, yeah. because that is intuition. And that is that sense of self. Like, I really trust what I see and not necessarily what you're telling me. Mm -hmm. And we want right? kids know how to listen to themselves. Absolutely. Like if someone is saying to them, I really love you. I want you to go rob this store because I love you. You want to have some kind of like understanding that what you're hearing and what you're seeing are kind of not the same. All right. So, so we want to validate their perspective. You always want to validate their perspective. And then you want to pull back and say, well, you know, do you always feel that way? Like you really want to start exploring like their belief system at that point. And you want to get curious and you want to start helping them like start to kind of build this, that it's not so black and white. It's not so absolute mm -hmm. because, you know, once they get locked into something like that, it becomes very black and white. 
Yeah. And I mean, so one of the roles that attachment relationships play is that they build children's internal working models of themselves and others, their sense of how the world works, their worthiness, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of those things are built within an attachment relationship. And those narratives, you know, as adults, we experience those narratives that were built in childhood all the time. Like when my husband puts the spatula in the wrong drawer, the narrative that comes up in my head is that he doesn't care about me. He knows that putting that spatula in the right place matters to me and he keeps putting it in the wrong place he must not care about me you know that's a narrative that's from a my narrative. own childhood it's not the truth you know and so yeah absolutely coming into touch with the kids you know when our kids show us their burgeoning their emerging narratives their emerging mm-hmm. stories that they have about themselves checking in with them getting curious with them but also mm-hmm. like being open to the feedback of like okay so somehow in some way this has been communicated to her Mm-hmm. or him and I gotta take a look at that with self-compassion with loads mm-hmm. of grace but it's good feedback for us too of like huh how is she getting that idea I, and I gotta take a look at myself like is it true am I so in my work that I do miss the majority of her goals like what must that feel like and without like self like flagellation no beating yourself up with compassion and then just little shifts and changes Absolutely. I have this kind of saying that, you know, change your life, you change your perspective. Mm. You change your perspective, your life will change. Yeah. All right. And so I think, you know, once we start getting into more something and we're kind of moving away from the baby and the parenting relationship, but when we start moving into, you know, the child into their own kind of like self-esteem, self-development, who they are, their core self, who they are in the world. I mean, that's what we're forming. Mm-hmm. All right. And if a child comes in and says, I'm a loser, I never get what I want. Well, that's a very black and white thinking. And what we want to do is we want to start going in with like the tools of like, really, you never get what you want. You know, were there times that maybe you got what you wanted where you start kind of like breaking that, that kind of rigid belief system mm-hmm. down, but it's going to be done. And let me say attachment is created in a relationship. It will be repaired in a relationship. Yes. <laughs> All right. And these relationships will come out the entire time in your life, whether it's with your spouse, you still have these five primary conditions. If you think about the same primary conditions, it's in your romantic relationship. Who doesn't want to feel safe? Who doesn't want to feel seen and known by your spouse or feeling comforted by your spouse or valued, or you want your spouse to want the best for you? Of course. It's the same in a work relationship with your boss. It's the same within your best friends. Mm -hmm. Where people get into trouble is when some of these, you know, get broken. Are you able to repair it or are you not? Sometimes you can't repair certain things, Mm -hmm. but other times you can. And it's to kind of understand the wisdom of knowing the difference. Mm -hmm. And that's all through relationships. Yeah. So I love that we're connecting this now into kind of how attachment flows within us, from us, from our histories and into our children too. This is the very nature of intergenerational change, you know, and as parents strive to change the way that they parent because they don't want to parent the way that they were parented growing up. Sometimes it shows us the healing that we have to do in our own attachment style, our own narratives too. And so I know that that's work that you do with your clients, right? You work on some of these attachment disturbances and repairing them within adults. So we've been talking a lot about kind of how to prevent this in our own children growing up. But then what if we become aware of some of them within ourselves? 
I think it's important because we all have an attachment style. It's the same thing if I asked you, what is your zodiac sign? We all have zodiac signs. And an <laughs> attachment style, you know, when we talk about it, it's not like somebody is a dismissive or somebody is secure. What I'm really talking about is the cluster of behaviors. Strategies. Okay. Yeah. That they use to cope in relationships. And some are really adaptive. I think you have more adaptive ones when you're secure, like what I just talked about, what a secure attachment is. And then you have these very maladaptive ones that were kind of created as well and they never were corrected. Yeah. And maybe so, were developed when you were babies and were adaptive at mm -hmm. the time. But as you move into adult relationships, become maladaptive, no longer serve you. Absolutely. And, you know, we see that a lot of times, like it's appropriate for a two-year-old to throw themselves on the floor because they're disappointed and they can't regulate their emotions and they're just so frustrated. We're like, okay, I, I get it. You know, you're, you're really frustrated, but do we respond the same way when a 55-year-old woman does it? Hopefully no. I mean, oh. hopefully with compassion, but also... Yeah. It's not appropriate at that age. But what this person is doing is they haven't changed their skill. They haven't changed their coping skill. They're still doing something that is so outdated. Yeah. Okay. And so the whole idea is, you know, what worked for you when you were two, great. But let's get some more tools in here. Yeah. You know, and when you learn to talk, let's get some more tools. Yeah. And, you know, we see these things come up in like marital relationships a lot. Things like giving the silent treatment, walking off and slamming a door when you're upset. You know, these patterns, these strategies for regulating a relationship, you know, come mm -hmm. out and they're there. And like with no blame, no shame, just recognizing, noticing them and up-leveling our skills, up-leveling our strategies if we need to, releasing some ones that no longer serve us and embracing some ones, you know, trying out some ones that might bring us closer to authentic connection and relationships, you know? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, as a therapist where I treat attachment disturbances, my goal is to help move somebody from an insecure attachment style, whether it be a dismissive cluster of behaviors or an anxious preoccupied cluster of behaviors. And just to give you an idea, dismissives tend to are little islands among themselves. Are they just kind of stay? This cluster of behaviors is like cut off. They don't really trust the world. They stay very aloof. They, you know, they have these kind of patterns. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite side is the anxious preoccupied, which is where they excessively worry about everything. Do people love me? Am I going to be okay? They tend to worry more about what other people think than valuing themselves. And so part of being a specialist is to really come in and identify what cluster of beliefs is going on here, what cluster of behaviors is going on here, and to really kind of pull out the maladaptive ones and kind of move them into the more secure range. And it is possible. Oh, it so, is possible. Yeah, it's so possible. I love it. Ah, oh, beautiful. Okay. Paula, thank you so much. This was such a fun deep dive into attachment and attachment theory. And I loved how we made it practical. Like we talked yes. about what it actually looks like in practice. Because I think, you know, moving from theory to practice, you know, is, I mean, one of my biggest goals. That's why I started the work that I do, you know, why I left yeah. academia and became a parenting educator, you know, so thank you for supporting me in that mission um, today and teaching us all this beautiful wisdom about attachment. Oh, I am so thrilled that you gave me this opportunity because, you know, if I can just tell parents, practice on the joys of parenting and not the chores, mm -hmm. you know, and just these five primary conditions, if you use these as tools, it just makes it so much easier. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, and I mean, bottom line, if nothing else, look at your children with love rays. Even tonight when you're at the dinner table, sit with a beautiful look on your face. And you know what they'll say to you? If they're older, they'll say, why are you looking at me like that? 
<laughs> because they're getting it. Mm -hmm. And if they're younger, what will happen is you'll notice they'll start to get a little bit elevated and they'll start to open up and blossom like a lotus. Mm, and beautiful. it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And these are free tips. These are, this is what you can do without, you know, equipment. It's right here. Yeah, it's all within you too. And it doesn't have to be perfect. Absolutely. I hope we've driven that home so much that when we like every time we make a mistake, every time we have a mismatch, uh, like where we've not attuned properly, or we've made a mistake, that is another opportunity to repair and reconnect and build a stronger, more resilient relationship with our child. Absolutely. So nothing is missed. Nothing is lost when we make mistakes. No. And I got to say, you got to start welcoming these mistakes because you yeah. don't want your child's first disappointment to be when they didn't get into Harvard at 18. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, if they don't have, you know, experiences in the past of disappointments, you know, the first one's going to be devastating. Yeah. But if they've had a lot of disappointments that have worked out and it's fine and everything's going to be okay, it's they hard, handle things so much you. easier. Yeah. yeah. So, you know what? Embrace Im imperfection. Absolutely. Embrace it. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you so much, Paula, for being with us. This is just a lovely conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk about attachment. Great. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other. And most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.